Olá and good evening. Welcome to Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pires. Thank you so much for joining me today. This evening, we take a look at some of the highlights of Pope Francis' 18th apostolic journey. But first, as usual, I bring you up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. So do stay with me. Hi, I'm Archbishop Peter Wells, Apostolic Nuncio. Thank you for listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change. In your headlines this Friday evening, Pope Francis in Cairo for his 18th apostolic journey. SACBC Justice and Peace Commission reiterates its call for the review of the youth wage subsidy. And Belgian bishops ask forgiveness for removal of children from African mothers. Good evening once again. I'm Sheila Pirish. As usual, we begin with church news. Pope Francis has arrived in Egypt to begin an apostolic journey to the country. The Pope touched down at Cairo International Airport this Friday afternoon, where he was met by the Apostolic Nuncio to Cairo, Bruno Muzaro, and a representative of the President of Egypt, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. After his arrival in the Egyptian capital, the Holy Father traveled by car to the presidential palace to pay a courtesy visit on the head of state, which included a welcoming ceremony. Later, the Pope addressed an international peace conference at Al-Hazar University, which was also attended by the Grand Imam Sheikh Ahmed El-Tayyib. Pope Francis arrived in Egypt today to defuse the clash of conflicts between Christians and Muslims. He has been invited to speak at Al-Azhar University, which is more or less the Vatican of Sunni Muslims. It is perhaps the most important institution in the Muslim world. The Pope will also give an important speech at a Cairo hotel in front of the president, politicians and representatives of civil society. It will be a delicate speech because Al-Sisi came to power in 2013 after a highly supported coup rejecting the Islamization undertaken by his predecessor, Morsi. Pope Francis will also visit the Pope of the Copts, Theodore II, as a sign of solidarity for the recent attacks. On Saturday, the Pope will celebrate Mass in front of 20,000 people at a military airport in Cairo. There, he will meet with priests and religious before returning to Rome. Bishop Abel Gabuza, the chairperson of the SACBC Justice and Peace Commission, has said that there is not much to celebrate on the International Workers' Day this year as long as millions of young people in the country remain unemployed and desperate. Justice and Peace Commission believes that youth unemployment in South Africa has now reached dangerous levels, with many of unemployed youth now being highly exposed to drug abuse, human trafficking, recruitment to life of crime and manipulation by unscrupulous politicians who recruit them for violent protests and political destabilization. Bishop Gabuza has therefore called on the government and the ANC policy conference in June to review the youth wage subsidy and its ability to reverse the youth unemployment trends in South Africa. The point is that so many young people who are not employed and you know um, their situation is desperate. And um, 
one feels that unless we address that aspect of young people not employed and not benefiting from uh, the system, we are going to have uh, tremendous uh, challenges in the future, a, a, a very big crisis. Therefore, we need to address this as soon as possible. And the whole issue of radical economic transformation, I see you've also made a note. What would you say are the proper steps to be taken with regards to this? Well, first of all, you know, a radical, the phrase radical economic transformation is something that no one knows what it means. You know, it's something that it's a wonderful slogan as far as I'm concerned. Be that as it may, what, what do we have Noticing is that you know people are using the slogan in order to you know say there should be you know changes you know that are to take place in this country. But one wonders you know for the last 23 years you know um, that should have been the first step you know uh, that people or politicians should have addressed. It's very interesting now that you know it's only being addressed now. And, and, you know, one wonders why. However, you know, we feel that perhaps what should be addressed in this country is the corruption and, and the, the culture of patronage, you know, that continues in various ways. And for us, that is very, very important. And therefore, um, if radical economic transformation is to take place, genuine radical transformation it to take place. It should benefit all people. It should be for the common good of all. And how do you think that genuine radical economic transformation should take place? What are the steps that you think should be taken? Well, I, I, one, I'm not a, a you know a, an economist, but what I know from my understanding of you know the Freedom Charter, the Freedom Charter you know was a very clear and still a very relevant document. It states very clearly. That all the you know the, the mineral, all the you know the, the the goods of this country, whatever is is coming from, whatever is you know the ground or whatever, it has to be shared by all people. And therefore, for me, it will be good for the politicians to go back to that document. I think it's a wonderful document, the Freedom Charter. And therefore, the Freedom Charter for me sets. You know, um, the pace, it, it's, it's a document that should be read and, you know, implemented, you know, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Bishop, you also mentioned that this so-called radical economic transformation, it's something that should have happened back uh, 23 years ago. But now it's happening yes. today, and you've seen the response towards this. People are unhappy. There's been lots of protests and lots of demonstrations, different political parties joining hands, including some religious leaders joining hands with these political parties, asking for the removal of the president. Now, should the president be removed. Who is there that can actually make these changes in South Africa? Like you've said, it should have happened 23 years ago and it's happening now, but it's being attacked at the same time. So who should be the one to make such transformations? Well, you know, all we can say right now is the current president cannot be trusted with implementing radical economic you know, um changes in this country. He is at the center of many, many 
know, episodes of corruption. So he's not the right person to do that. So we'll have to wait for a change of leadership within the, the party that is going to govern. And as far as I'm concerned, that should be the way things, you know, um, are, are done in this country. When there's a new uh, leadership, you know, or any party that comes into power, that party will have to address the issue of economic inequalities in this country. We have been able to achieve political, you know, freedom and power, but the the gap between the rich and the poor, it's 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 so, you know, um, disturbing. And it's sinful, in fact. And therefore, I think myself, it's only new leaders who can implement this radical economic transformation. Do we have leaders that are unkept? Well, you know, that is a million-run um, question. Um, we will have to... But I think myself, in this country, there are leaders. It, it, it seems to me... They they need to to be sort of um, call upon people need to be call upon to take you know uh, responsibility. But I think myself, we we have plenty of leaders in this country who can be able to work in such a way that you know um, everything is done for the common good of of all citizens. But so far, the leaders we have had are people who have. Um, uh, try their best to benefit their families and and those who support them. That should not have happened, but that is a lesson that we have learned. Well, Bishop Gabuza, thank you so much for your time. Any last words? Well, you know, I I hope you know um, I hope myself that we should be able to to have hope and you know um, and things will go well in this country. And therefore, I I do not feel. Many of us should, you know, allow ourselves to be embraced and, you know, dominated by despair. There is hope. And therefore, for me, that hope is something that keeps me alive. And that was Bishop Abel Gabuza, the chairperson of the SACBC Justice and Peace Commission. The Catholic bishops of Zambia have criticized the arrest of an opposition party leader, saying that police actions should not be used to settle political scores. Hakainde Hichilema was arrested and accused of treason after he disrupted a motorcade of President Edgar Lungo. Police broke into his home and arrested him at night, noted the bishops. Hichilema lost narrowly to Lungo in elections last August. The Zambian Bishops' Conference noted with concern that elections had been marred by violence and the climate of violence still prevails. The Ethiopian state of Amhara has banned small churches, inspiring the neighboring state of Tigray to consider a ban on ecclesial communities with under 6,000 members, as well as a ban on evangelization. The move comes as Protestant churches make inroads in traditionally Ethiopian Orthodox areas, and this is according to World Watch Monitor. 
In more African news, the warring parties in South Sudan have been urged by the head of the UN mission in South Sudan, UN Miss David Scherer, to stop the suffering they are causing, take responsibility for the lives they have destroyed, and to uphold their responsibility to protect civilians as fighting intensifies once again in the northeastern Apanal region. Daniel Dickinson is the UN Miss spokesperson. Up to 25,000 people have reportedly fled their homes on the west bank of the River Nile over the last few days following increased military activity. It's reported that thousands have fled to the town of Abarok, 30 kilometres north of Kodok, where there are now an estimated 50,000 people, although some are now trying to cross over the border into Sudan after government forces took control of Kodok on Wednesday. On Monday, humanitarian workers were evacuated from Kodok to Abarok following advice from South Sudanese forces on the ground. Last night, those humanitarian workers continued to further locations. The Upper Nile region has been a focus of military action over the last several months. UNMIS is seeking to gain access to Abarok as quickly as possible in order to assess the security situation. However, the mission was denied clearance by government SPLA forces on Thursday to launch an air patrol to the town. On Thursday, the UN Students Fund, UNICEF, said that Ismail Bey, author and former child soldier from Sierra Leone, has been helping young Syrians in exile amplify their voices. The UNICEF advocate for war-affected children wrapped up a three-day trip to Jordan, where he helped around 50 young people from Jordan, Lebanon and Syria develop their advocacy skills. Jocelyn Sambira reports from UN News. Mr. Bia also visited the Zatari refugee camp near the Syrian border and a UNICEF-supported Makani Center in Amman, where children and young people can learn and get psychosocial support. After more than six years of war, more than 2.5 million children from Syria are now living as refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq. Mr. Bia said he believed young people who survive war could become champions of peace, despite the horrors they've been through. He said he knew from experience that all the pain, suffering, and sense of loss of humanity endured could be refocused towards something positive. With UNICEF's support, 120 young refugees and members of the host communities have trained as researchers for an innovative project where young people open up to each other about their lives and aspirations. The researchers interview other marginalized young people to find their biggest challenges in order to help improve access to education and vocational training. In other news, young women and girls around the globe showed off their tech skills on Thursday to celebrate International Girls in ICT Day. The day is organized every year by the International Telecommunications Union, ITU, to turn the spotlight on women working in the field of information and communications technology, otherwise known as ICT. It also seeks to encourage more girls to plan for a career in this expanding field. Jocelyn Sambira reports from UN News. A virtual international meetup of girls in three cities around the world through a shared game application and video link was the highlight of this year's main event organized by the ITU, a UN-specialized agency. 
These digital girls sat in the Swiss capital Geneva, the Lithuanian capital Vilnius, and the Lebanese capital Beirut, exploring ICT together and interacting in real time. In Geneva, local pupils learned new digital skills and met with women mentors from the tech sector. Here are some of their reactions. I think girls in the ICT day is really important because a lot of girls do really come together and they can share the experiences of the projects they did. I think girls in ICT day can encourage girls to get careers in ICT because you're showcasing many really interesting mentors who have kind of had a great career in ICT and it just shows the girls that there's so many opportunities and you can do really whatever you want. It's really good that we get to interact and have speakers come in and tell us about what is happening and how we can achieve our goals in life. In Vilnius, the girls enjoyed a robotics workshop and were also given practical demonstrations of virtual and augmented reality. Other key events took place in Barbados, Brazil, Egypt, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, Trinidad and Tobago. And finally, the bishops of Belgium have asked forgiveness for the role of Catholic institutions in the removal of biracial children from African mothers during Belgian rule from 1909 to 1960 of what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Conceived out of wedlock, children of Belgium settlers and African mothers were often snatched from their mothers and placed in orphanages or children's homes, often run by Belgian nuns and priests away from their families, from their brothers and sisters and from their African roots, stated the bishops. The bishops also noted that some of these children were sent to Belgium and were cared for by household or foster families and that they have been unable to fully enjoy their civil rights and many have found themselves on the margins of Belgian society. The bishops have pledged to open their archives to help these children and their descendants to learn more about their parents or ancestors. And those were just some of your headline stories from the Catholic Church and Africa today. While you're still listening to Catholic View right here on Radio Veritas, and I'm Sheila Pirsch. Up next is our feature. Today we continue to shine the spotlight on Pope Francis' 18th apostolic journey. As mentioned earlier, Pope Francis has arrived in Egypt to begin an apostolic journey to the country. The Pope will spend just over 24 hours in the Egyptian capital, where he'll also meet with the head of the Coptic Orthodox Church, Pope Tawadus II, as well as leaders of the small Catholic communities in that country. At Al-Hazar University, Pope Francis spoke at an international peace conference, which the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew also attended. His visit to the prestigious Islamic institution comes just two months after the resumption of talks between the university and a Vatican delegation. Professor Gabriel Said Reynolds teaches Islamic studies and technology at the University of Notre Dame in the United States and was a member of the Catholic delegation for the talks at Al-Hazar back in February, which came after years of tension and mistrust between the two sides. 
Now, Vatican Radio's Philippa Hitchens spoke to Professor Reynolds to find out more about the impact of the Pope's visit in the context of this new phase of Catholic-Muslim relations. You attended the recent round of talks, didn't you, between the Vatican and Al-Azhar in Cairo. What kind of reception did you receive there at that meeting? The Azhar delegation was remarkably eager to restart the conversations with the Vatican delegation. You're right that there had been a history of complications regarding this dialogue, which dates back to the the bombing on December 31st, 2010 in Alexandria. And there was also some questions about exactly the relationship between Al-Azhar and the Vatican during the period of Pope Benedict's uh, papacy since the election of Pope Francis. I think there's been a a rewarming of relationships between a number of different Islamic institutions in the Vatican, and this was one sign of that warming, and uh, there was a real eagerness to to welcome the Vatican delegation. The meeting there focused, didn't it, on fundamentalism and religious violence, beyond obviously agreeing that we must work together to combat it. What kind of practical progress do you think that meeting achieved? At the heart of the meeting was an exhibition of the efforts by Al-Azhar currently to combat the propaganda of extremist groups, notably ISIS or Daesh, in the Islamic world. So this was a real opportunity for people on the Al-Azhar side to make the point that, listen, the West often makes the claim that why won't Muslims stand up to extremism and to violent groups in the heart of the Islamic world? And Al-Azhar was making the point that we're doing just that. They really emphasize the work of an institution in the heart of Al-Azhar known as Al-Azhar Observer, which is active in social media uh, in combating the propaganda of, of ISIS in particular, but other extremist groups as well. And there was also a sense that there was work that could be done on both sides and work that could be done together. So there was a concern for encouraging the Vatican to continue its efforts to uh, reach out to people in the West about welcoming Muslim migrants in Europe and elsewhere. That was one issue. Uh, but on the other side as well, there was encouragement from the Vatican that Al-Azhar would continue to um, speak out about the importance of the rights of Christian minorities in the Islamic world. How much authority, in your view, does Al-Azhar have within the Muslim world to do just this? I mean, it is a, a revered seat of learning, but how much can it speak for the wider Muslim world? Right, that's an excellent question, and the answer is not immediately obvious, because unlike with the Catholic Church, where we have a clear central authority and a teaching body that the faithful can all look to, in the Islamic world, there's no organized central body. So Al-Azhar relies on the, the politics and the power of persuasion, and in many ways, their ability to persuade is linked to their prestige within the Sunni Islamic world. Historically, it's been one of the most prestigious institutions, in part because of its age. The Lazar was founded at least the university and under a certain form already in the 10th or 11th century, depending on how you calculate things exactly. On the other hand, in recent years, there have been some parties of the Islamic world who consider Al-Azhar to be one voice among many in the Islamic world. There's some concern about the relationship between Al-Azhar and the Egyptian government. There's also a rise of more conservative Salafi Islam, 
which looks to other sources of authority and sees Al-Azhar as not rigorous enough and as opposed to the Islamic law. So in this context, then, what impact do you think Pope Francis's visit can have in terms of perhaps supporting the, uh, this voice that Al-Azhar has? I think it's enormously important to have a Pope who's willing to not only um, speak about the importance of interreligious, interreligious dialogue, but in fact to go to the heart of the Islamic world, to be in Cairo meeting with Al-Azhar. My sense is that the impact will take place principally by the way in which Al-Azhar can help amplify the Pope's voice and his message about interreligious dialogue, his message about authentic religion, supporting the path of peace. When those messages come only from the Pope speaking from Rome or elsewhere in Europe, um, they can reach a certain audience. But when they come from Cairo alongside Sheikh Ahmed Al-Sayyid, the Grand Imam, then a lot of people will listen. It will uh, help, on the one hand, encourage Muslims to seek positive relations with their Christian uh, neighbors in wherever country they may be found, and will also in- encourage Muslims to continue on the path that most are already taking, which is to look to the heart of the religious sources in Islam for a voice of moderation. How would you describe the local relations there in Cairo and in Egypt itself in terms of Muslim-Christian communities? At the moment, things are extremely tense. In Cairo, of course, after the, the twin bombing on Palm Sunday, um, which is not an isolated incident. This is the latest in a series of attacks on Christians, and I think the Christian community in Egypt can rightly feel that they're innocent victims of all of this. They have not, there haven't been Christian attacks on Islamic institutions. They haven't provoked these attacks in any ways. Sometimes the sorts of accusations that have been made among the Christian community have to do with rumors that, for example, a Christian man has had relations with a Muslim woman, or rumors that a church is being rebuilt without official permission from the religious authorities in Egypt. So the sorts of things which should be taken for granted as a normal element of a religious community's rights to conduct its own affairs lead to polemics um, against the Christian community, and then, of course, sporadically, these terrible acts of violence. So there's great frustration and concern on the, the Christian side, the Christian community welcomed the election of Sisi initially. They were among his greatest supporters. There's now enormous anxiety that he hasn't been able to protect the Christian community, of course. On the other side, there's also tension in the heart of the Islamic community in Egypt because of the historical competition between more conservative brands of Islam, including Salafis, including the Muslim Brotherhood, and those who have aligned themselves more closely with the Sisi government. So there's internal tension there as well. So in some ways, the timing of the Pope's visit couldn't come at, uh, couldn't come at a better time uh, because of the turmoil right now, a voice of, of peace and moderation is sorely needed. My thanks to Professor Gabriel Said Reynolds from Notre Dame University. That brings me up.
until then. You keep making a way out of nowhere. people of goodwill come together for a good cause, God's blessing is always sure to follow. Now Radio Veritas, with the help of the Radio Veritas Warriors, is creating a forum for Catholic professionals and we would like you, yes, you, to be part of it. And to get the ball rolling we're inviting you to a drink or two at our first event, that's the wine and whiskey tasting evening. This takes place on the 8th of June at 7 o'clock in the evening at the enchanting Tint Swallow at the Waterfall in Gauteng. Tickets are 2,500 each, so book early. You can also visit the website www.radioveritas.co.za for more information. Remember, it's the Radio Veritas Wine and Whiskey Tasting Evening, powered by the Radio Veritas Warriors. Truth. The voyage of discovery lies not in finding new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Truth simply is. Sou Dulce Araújo da Programa Portuguesa África da Rádio Vaticano. Dulce Araújo, muito prazer aqui estar a falar com a Sheila Pires da Rádio Veritas. Então, o que é que tem acontecido aí em Roma em relação ao Sínodo? Desde que o Sínodo começou já aconteceu muita coisa, digamos, no sentido de que já houve é, muitas, muitas intervenções. Como sabe, depois da missa do domingo, os trabalhos começaram logo na segunda-feira. É, Trabalha-se de manhã e tarde, há intervenções programadas e depois, geralmente, eh, ao fim da tarde, há uma hora de, intervenção, de intervenções livres em que eh, o bispo que quiser dá a própria opinião ou reage a algum, a, a algum orador que tenha falado antes. Na segunda-feira foi apresentado um relatório geral